Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... Welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the cultural survival podcast by, for, and about women and people of all genders who experience sexism. I have been so looking forward to today's conversation because I've never done an episode on diet culture or body positivity before, and it's an issue that I know affects everyone, no matter what your gender, but women in particular are obviously barraged with messages practically from birth about what they should look like and what they should eat and how what they look like and what they eat are completely open for comment by pretty much anyone and everyone in society. And my guest today knows firsthand the devastating effects of this and other aspects of diet culture. So I'm so excited to have her here today. Thank you, Antonia Hartley, for being here and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Just so y'all know, I started following Antonia on, am I saying your name correctly? Yeah, totally. Okay, good. Um, on Instagram and was very, uh, where her platform is called the feminist nutritionist and was really, I, I learned a lot from, uh, reading, following your account and reading your posts and also from reading many of the comments on your posts, like a lot of the exchanges there. It's a really deep conversation around nutrition and diet culture that really took my knowledge, uh, to the next level. So I thought let's, let's all, um, let's extend this and to the whole podcast community. So thanks again for, for making the time to start off with. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? You live in North Carolina. Is that right? Yes. I live in North Carolina. So I am a registered dietitian nutritionist and I work, um, for right now I work for a company called Lutz Alexander and associates nutrition therapy. Um, I have a really long and windy history. How I got here is a long story, but basically right now what I do is one-on-one nutrition therapy with folks of all sizes, all genders, all gender um, expressions, um, all races, and really my specialty and expertise has become eating disorders, disordered eating, and body image disturbances. Um, So yeah, right now I'm doing one-on-one nutrition therapy and like you said, in Feminist Nutritionist on Instagram and Feminist RD on Twitter. And that's only been for the past, I would say, like two years, really. Um, and that was, I'm so glad that you found me through social. I've, I found a lot of really, really awesome people through social after making that change. And um, it's, it's been a great journey. Very cool. So were you a nutritionist who got into feminism or were you a feminist who became a nutritionist or how are those identities linked for you? Yeah. Okay. That's a great question. So I grew up in small town, Kansas, where like my, the doses of feminism that I got in the eighties in Kansas were like from PBS and my grandmother and, you know, my mom is definitely a feminist, but there weren't a ton of resources, I would say. Mm. Um, And then my sister who's older than me, I don't even know how she found Smith college, but she went to Smith college, which is a women's college in Massachusetts. Ah, okay. And I went to her graduation and I was like, yes, like I want to do this. So um, I went to Smith and I would say going to Smith College, absolutely. Like I became sort of like a capital F feminist. Mm-hmm. And um, and then my trajectory, you know, on from there has been 
Um, I've always considered myself a feminist really since then, definitely. Um, but really the work that I do now, feminism is a part of my conversations with my clients every single day, which is so cool. And I'm learning about feminism and people's experiences and privilege um, just every single day. When I looked at your Instagram, I one of the posts recently, you talk about the connection between feminism and food freedom. Mm-hmm. And food freedom was an expression that I have never heard before. So I thought that was really interesting. Can you explain what food freedom is and how that relates to feminism? Yeah, that's a great question. So food freedom, let's see, I haven't like, let's see if I can give this a, a brilliant definition. I would consider food freedom to be... Um, anti-diet culture, right? Diet culture teaches us that there are good foods and there are bad foods. And diet culture teaches us that there are, there is sort of like a perfect way to eat and an imperfect way to eat. And there are good bodies and bad bodies. And what I work with, with definitely with um, every single client that I work with, and I think all of us are on this journey somewhere, is figuring out um, what food freedom looks like for you. You know, what rules have you been taught about food or about your body um, that just aren't true and um, and have been informed by sort of like this consumerist, fat phobic diet culture that we've all been sort of like bathed in since birth. So what food freedom ends up looking like mm. for a lot of my clients is um, practicing the, the tenets of intuitive eating. You know, there's 10 principles. It's a book that came out by a couple of dietitians in the 90s that um, is still you know, going through iterations over the past 20 years. Um, there's a lot of research to back it up. So, you know, the, using the principles of intuitive eating, that there are no good foods and no bad foods, um, rejecting diet culture, uh, figuring out other tools that we can use to cope with life that have nothing to do with using food or using food restriction, um, moving our bodies in ways that have nothing to do with calories or miles or, you know, pounds, anything. It's really all about like, joyful movement. So yeah, I'm kind of rambling about this answer, but food freedom, I would say would be sort of like anti-diet culture, right? It's, it's trying to find a path and with food for, for each individual person that resonates as feeling free. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of how that would um, be considered kind of a feminist approach to nutrition and food and health and all of that. that oh. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, totally. You know, I think yeah, like patriarchy teaches us that there are like ideal bodies and that there are ideal ways to eat. And there are, um, I, you know, I, I read, there's this book called Fat is a Feminist Issue, and I haven't read the whole book, but in the introduction, the author talks about like um, the beginnings of diet culture really went hand in hand with the beginnings of women's suffrage. Oh, how interesting. Right? Like what's the perfect way to keep women like small and quiet? Mm. dieting starve them (laughs) give them a scale right yeah i just think that yeah anti the anti-diet movement the fat positivity movement the um intuitive eating movement those are feminist movements and what are some examples of diet culture i mean there's sort of the really obvious ones that tell you in not so many words to as you said sort of measure your worth in terms of numbers on the scale or inches or um, how many miles you can run or whatever. But I feel like um, there are some more kind of sneaky, insidious ones that kind of come through disguised as other things. Can you give us some examples of some of the ones that are 
almost harder to identify or harder to escape? Yeah, definitely. I think one example that I'm seeing a lot right now, you know, it's sort of the in North America, it's the turning of the seasons and things are getting warmer. And so we're showing more skin with clothing. And I have a lot of clients coming in and being like, okay, I don't want to diet. Um, but what do you think about Whole30? Mm. You know, there's this idea that eating healthy and figuring out what you're sensitive to and, um, you know, doing some sort of like eating plan like Whole30, um, it's not about dieting. It's, you know, they, they, they tell me it's not about dieting. I don't want to lose weight. It's really about like, um, you know, I just want to try this. It's been presented It's about figuring out my body. Figuring out my body. Exactly. And the whole whole 30 is it's a diet, right? Diet the definition of dieting is eating in a way with the intention to lose weight. And um, you know, not that there's anything wrong with people who want to feel like they want to try to lose weight. I don't want to demonize people's paths, but we just have a lot of research that shows that dieting doesn't really work and mm-hmm. that dieting causes weight gain and dieting causes inflammation and dieting and, and that weight cycling might be at the root of a lot of disease. Um, that doctors have and doctors and researchers have like pointed toward obesity to blame. It might actually be the weight cycling. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, that's that's a huge piece. I think that a lot of people don't know. Um, so I think that's that's what I'm seeing right now a lot of of these eating plans that are that are um, sort of cloaked in diet culture. Oh, that's very interesting because I've definitely, um, I've definitely gone down that path myself and. It definitely feels like a diet <laughs> when you're doing it. Totally. Um, can you comment on the need for a more intersectional approach to nutrition and body positivity? Um, because I think that that's another thing that I really appreciated about some of your posts. And it's also, again, um, being somewhat new to this space, something that I don't have a lot of experience thinking about. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, I mean... So I I haven't been that active on social in a while, and I know that your listeners can't see me, but I am a white, you know, whenever I'm giving a presentation, I always like to sort of like list my privileges just so people know Mm -hmm. that I know, you know, and I always like to tell people like right up front, like I'm a white, thin, cis, able-bodied, I have like education privilege, I have financial privilege, I have like, um, I, I have... I have, I have so many, I have all the privilege, right? Um, I, I, I actually identify as queer, but I present in a lot of ways as very hetero. Um, so I just like to put that up front that I haven't been posting that much on social because I'm sort of in this moment of dealing with sort of like um, my place in sort of the hierarchy of this issue. Um, but when I do post, I try to um, spotlight. I try to spotlight people who are, um, you know, black indigenous people of color. I try to spotlight people who are in larger bodies. I try to spotlight queer folks. I try to spotlight people of different gender presentations. Um, cause I don't, I don't necessarily think that I need any more spotlighting <laughs> like people like mm, me, right. you know, and there's this, um, there's this hashtag that I love that's happening right now. That's hashtag diversified dietetics. Um, oh, okay. that, <laughs> pardon me, that I adore, um, I think that it's whenever you look at it now, it's a lot of like, um, you know, women of color, a lot of uh, men or people of different gender presentations. Um, and that's, and people in larger bodies, we need dietitians in larger bodies for sure. Um, 
and in all bodies. So, yeah, I think in speaking to sort of like the intersectional nature of dietetics, it has historically been a very white, thin, hetero field, and it still very much is, um, but it's changing. You know, at least, for example, Let's and Alexander, where I work, like we all identify as feminists and, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're trying, you know, we're looking out for people, you know, to, for, to, to the spotlight and hire people of different gender presentations and races and, and sexualities. Um, but it's so needed. I have people email me before they come to see me and they ask me, you know, they ask me really intense questions about my body and my presentation and, and, um, they want to make sure they're going to be in sort of a safe space. And I am not the right answer for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, You know, some people don't want a, a, a thin white cis, um, provider. Um, however, I did have one person email me and I was like, so just, you know, I'm like, I'm in a thin body. She was looking for someone in a larger body. And she was like, that's okay. I heard you were queer, you know, (laughs) you know, so I think that there are hopefully the, the, the dietetics profession is just going to continue to change and grow. And so this is another question that, um, or another expression that is new to me, but I've heard a lot about body positivity. And recently I've been hearing more about body neutrality. And I wondered if you could talk about the, um, the distinction between those two expressions. Yeah. So body positivity or like hashtag BOPO is this, um, movement really of, um, have you heard of the book, um, the body is not an apology. Yes. Okay. So Sonia, Sonia Renee Taylor, I just, freaking love that book. I think everyone should read that book. Um, And her book is basically all about self-love and radical self-love and how that can, you know, people are really good at sort of like shining their light out into the world. And there's this idea that this radical idea of like shining that light back on you and self-love and self-compassion can be really healing as far as like the, you know, the Bopo journey is concerned. Um, Body positivity is this idea of acceptance and self-love and, um, you know, trying to, yeah, love and accept what is, right? To to just get rid of sort of the diet culture messaging that your fat rolls are bad and that our stretch marks are bad and that our cellulite is bad and that that is what is. And for a lot of folks, body positivity isn't possible. Um, isn't possible, um, I'll add yet, or isn't possible maybe ever. And body, mm. body neutrality feels more attainable. Uh, one example would be, you know, like a client of mine who is identifies as trans. And in the trans community, for example, um, eating disorder, rates of eating disorders are higher, rates of body negativity and body image disturbances are much higher. And a lot of that is because they feel like their bodies are, um, not how they identify, right? Mm. They're they're sort of trying to get rid of those sort of like primary sexual characteristics that are naturally coming out. And so they're using really maladaptive techniques to do that, that are damaging and harmful. Um, and so getting to body positivity, like using the health at every size paradigm or intuitive eating principles might not feel possible for them, but body neutrality might feel a little more attainable. Gotcha. You know, neutrality is just this sort of like, okay, yeah, my body. All right. I'm I'm here with it. I have more questions about that, but I'm going to save them until a little bit later um, in the episode. Because I think that's that kind of self-love idea is something that is 
it's very appealing. And I think it's really easy for those of us who have, um, you know, work in media um, to emphasize that as something that's desirable. But then I, what I hear you saying and what I have been thinking about lately is, are there some cases where putting so much emphasis on that is actually potentially a roadblock for some people? So we'll talk more about that a little bit later. So we are going to talk about what made our feminist hearts sing lately. Mm. And I um, I picked this one in honor of you. <laughs> so um, and it actually is something that I have been wanting to talk about on the show anyway. So this is a perfect opportunity. So there is a British actress named Jamila Jamil. I think is how you say her name. Um she, like I said, she's British. She's from a Pakistani family and she's done a lot of things, but she's best known in the United States for being on the TV show, The Good Place. Mm. And recently she's been in a pretty public scrap with the Kardashians <laughs> over um, their selling detox diet weight loss products. Um, yeah, she's she has called them out pretty publicly and um it that resulted in one of the most ch- chilling and um chilling sentences that I think I've ever read on Twitter. She said their pockets are lined with the blood and diarrhea of teenage girls, Ooh. which so she is not pulling any punches. She is not here to play. Um Jamila is uh really for real when it comes to this body positivity stuff. And that's, so she's not just sort of preaching self-love. She's also being very pointed when she sees um, fat shaming, when she sees toxic diet culture. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's exciting, but the positive part, so it's feminist hot dog. But I'm always sort of trying to, to find the stuff that is, um, that is really uplifting is that she started this campaign called I way and it's essentially a campaign that encourages people to post about their many interesting identities and qualities with the hashtag I weigh as a way to encourage us all to focus on who we are as people and not assessing each other as soon as we, you know, not assessing each other basically on like, I meet you and I register the size of your body. And that's like, that's what I think of you like starting Um, And I think that that's really important, obviously, because just like race, size is one of the first things we see when we encounter each other. Um, And just like race, we're socialized to believe things about people based on their size. And the things that we are socialized to believe about fat people are predominantly negative. So she's really specific about um, calling, not only calling that out, but providing this alternative way to think about each other and ourselves by, um, so these posts are really beautiful. They're hashtag I weigh. And then there's these nice lists of all these things that people, um, not only that they do and that they are, but their, their qualities, their positive qualities as well. So I'm also a fan. She herself is very slim and using her platform very pointedly to tell other slim people that they need to challenge their own biases Mm -hmm. and use their privilege to engage this conversation that fat shaming is never okay. It needs to be consistently called out and that that needs to start with being aware of all the insidious ways that diet culture kind of creeps into our consciousness, which is something I think that 
I know that I personally need to learn a lot more about. And I think that um, the more we talk about it and the more that we follow campaigns like this um, and celebrate work like this, the, the better, the more um, fine-tuned our thinking and our biases and our reactions will be when we encounter um, those messages. So um, I also really like that the iWay campaign directly calls out corporations and names the fact that uh, businesses like it when we are ashamed and insecure because it makes us want to buy things. <laughs> and um, that's another message that we need to I n- need to receive over and over and over again because commercialism is also subconsciously drummed into us mm-hmm. pretty much our whole lives. So it's another one we we have to actively drum it out. Um, so it's lovely to see all these posts and to see all the ways that people are describing themselves. Um, if you go to if you go to the iWay account on Instagram, scroll back several weeks to see some of, there's like kind of a critical mass of posts um, a few weeks ago that will make your heart sing too. So that's, um, that's one that I was really happy to come across and wanted to share today in the context of our conversation. I love that. I love yeah. that. You know, like um, the, in the book, um, uh, The Body is Not an Apology, Sonia Renee Taylor gives this example of um, of how diet culture is like the the French language. Have you read the book? Do you know this part I'm talking about? No, no, I've heard of it, but I've not read it. Um, so she basically gives this gives this example of diet culture and diet thinking. You know, because you said we have to crush the stuff, and it's true we have to crush it. But I think the first step is we have to like do what you ask first. Is like what are the insidious ways that diet culture exists. Mm. And, you know, diet culture is like being, this is what Sonia Renee Taylor talks about in her book. It's like being raised in France. And let's say you were raised in France and you learned French and then your mom got a job in um, North Carolina. And so moved the family to North Carolina and then you had to learn English. And every once in a while, there would be like a French thought that happened or you'd say a French word or there would be like you dream in French and it's this idea that we are bathed in diet culture, we, like we're bathed in French. Um, and when you notice that you're having like a diet culture thought, um, it's sort of like you accidentally spat out a French, a French phrase, like, oh, look at that, mm. I'm speaking French again. And the letting go of this perfectionism around it, you know, like, because you're going to have these French thoughts. You're going to have thoughts about like not liking your body or being afraid of foods that you were told were bad or that only men eat burgers. You know, I've heard, I've heard it all from my clients. Right. Um, and so naming those thoughts is like, oh, I'm having a diet culture thought or, oh, I'm speaking French again, um, trying to identify those ways and then and then fighting against like who's teaching those lessons. That's so interesting because that reminds me a lot of um some of the teachings of mindfulness, right? Where like, if you are having, if your mind is racing and you feel um, overwhelmed by that, a lot of mindfulness practitioners will tell you, just tell, remind yourself, oh, I'm just future tripping or, oh, I'm just um, having this kind of thought. And if you can sort of name it without getting down on yourself about, you know, having the thought in the first place, that that is actually a really great first step to just sort of bringing yourself down a notch and kind of, you know, being able to give yourself a minute to kind of pause and, and reset your mind. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I usually tell my clients, your first thought is usually your socialization. Your second thought might actually be in alignment with your own values. Oh, I love that. First step. So first thought socialization, second thought alignment with your values. I feel like that can work for a lot of 
kind of implicit thoughts and biases that we carry. Yeah. Yeah. So how about you? What has made your feminist heart sing lately? Well, ours are, I I love that we both went to popular culture. Um, (laughs) Mine is about Shrill, the the show on Hulu. Oh my gosh. I literally watched the first four episodes last night. Oh, yay. It's so good. I'm, I'm absolutely in love with it. Yeah. I mean, okay, so for those who don't know, right, so Shrill was initially, it's based on Lindy West's memoir from 2016, which that book I recommend as well. Um, and it's, it's, it's the first season is six episodes long, and it centers A.D. Bryant from SNL, um, who is, it's a show that centers the experience of this girl living in a larger body. And I think Lindy, you know, would use the reclaimed word fat to describe her um, and the show sort of shows her on the cusp of claiming the word fat and finding the fat community and having lots of sex and having a really sort of like normal life, um, which we're not really shown a lot for people who are in larger bodies on TV and movies. And usually if there are larger bodies, there are going to be fat jokes or they're dieting or the main character is weighing herself and she's feeling self-loathing. And this show is just not that at all. I think it's brilliant. Um, so many of my clients have come in being like, you're watching Shrill, aren't you? Like, <laughs> like you wrote this show, didn't you? Um, and I think that, you know, this show makes my heart sing because these shows just don't happen, right? We live in a racist, fat phobic society. And um, these, these characters in these shows have to be like actively created and actively supported in order to thrive. Um, and I think all the, you know, all the different ways that this show centers you know, fat, black, brown, indigenous, queer folks is just like beautiful and brilliant. And I loved every minute of it. Um, so I just felt like so many experiences were validated and seen and it's, and it's funny. It's like a funny, smart show. It's really smart. And I used to live in Portland, so it's really fun to see how it also pokes a little bit of fun at that particular community, which claims to be so woke and progressive. And yet in in the context of the kinds of um, biases that she experiences, not at all. I mean, I just it's like everybody thinks that they're um, super progressive in all these different ways, but then we'll just say like these really insensitive and insulting things to her, and it's um, it's I just I think that commentary in terms of the place that it's set to is also just brilliant and fascinating. So, yeah. yay, love it. I actually. Um, have a date to finish all the rest of the whole series tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I, I can't wait. I I even said it goes so fast. It's only six episodes. And I thought like, I wonder if that is even fat phobic. Like the fact that they only got six episodes greenlit. I was like, oh, mm. they could only, they only gave them six. I know. Well, that could be, it is coming back for another season though. I, I just heard that. Good, good. So I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. Yeah. Um, Definitely watch Cheryl, everybody. It's Mm -hmm. uh, a breath of fresh air and just great on every level. Definitely. So there's a segment of the show that um, from the very beginning called Dear Feminist Hot Dog. And when I first started the show, I was answering listener questions. And for season two, I've changed that up a little bit. And instead of answering lis- answering listener questions, I am asking my guests questions that I want to know the answers to 
that line up with you and your area of expertise. So I actually have two questions for you. Okay. So, um, dear feminist hot dog, Antonia, (laughs) first, um, what is your recommended response when a friend refers to themselves as fat in a derogatory way? In the past, I would say like, no, you're not. But I know that, um, I now I know I don't want to reinforce our anti-fat culture by saying that because it's implying that fat is a bad thing to be. And I also know that if they are feeling bad about themselves in that moment anyway, it might not be the time to jump in with a lecture about body positivity and loving themselves any size. So um, given how often I think women say that or hear comments like that, what what's the right thing to say in that situation. Yeah. Okay. I I hear this a lot. And I think the answer is dependent on so many things, right? The answer is dependent on your relationship with that person. Um, and, and really your answer is also dependent on whether or not they actually are in a larger body. Mm. Um, you know, because um, there's this brilliant person I definitely recommend everyone follow um, with this body at with this body on Instagram. She's this um, therapist who's in, located in Greensboro, North Carolina. And she just told this beautiful story on social about how um, her daughter, basically someone called her daughter or called someone fat and her daughter did exactly what you're saying. Her daughter was like, okay, bodies come in all sizes and being fat is not a put down. So, so what? yeah, you're fat. Okay. Um, so I think that, that, you know, if you're, if someone actually is in a fat body, um, then like there, there's this sort of like, yeah, so what, you know, body diversity is a thing. Um, I love teaching my clients. Have you heard about the video on YouTube? That's poodle science. No. Poodle science is a great video. It was put out by the association of size diversity. And, um, it's this video all about how just like in the dog world, we have, we have differences. We have anatomical, anatomical and phenotypical differences. Um, you know, you would never expect a poodle to weigh what a great Dane weighs and you would never expect a great Dane to wear to weigh what a toy poodle weighs. Um, similarly in the human animal world, we have size diversity. We have different phenotypes. You know, we literally are just different animals. Um, and, and size diversity exists, you know, so that's like one sort of like nerdy response, you know, sort of trying to to diffuse the conversation by being like, yeah, size diversity exists, whatever. Um, another way is, is sort of like changing the subject, you know, Mm. um, changing the subject, doing it in a humorous way. Um, or, you know, what I've done in the past is if, if I hear someone sort of like um, talking negatively about their body or talking negatively about other people's bodies is calling it out and, and calling it what it is, calling it diet talk, calling it fat shaming. Um, and like you said, not necessarily lecturing it, but just sort of like naming it because a lot of people don't don't recognize they're doing it. Um, right. You know, so it, I've, I've seen in the past, if I name it as fat shaming, or if I name it as diet talk, I've, I've actually had people say like, oh, that's diet talk. Oh, huh. Fascinating. You know, they didn't realize they were even doing it. I like that. And you could, and you could do that humorously too. You could say like, girl, don't make me give you a lecture on fat shaming. Yes. <laughs> like, I love that. And just kind of frame it that way. Yes. I'm going to put that one in my, in my pocket. I mm-hmm. like that. 
Um, okay. So my second question is kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about self-love. So how can we encourage self-love without making life harder for people who struggle to love themselves? We see and hear a lot about self-love and how important it is to love yourself. And I agree because wouldn't the world be better and we'd all be so much happier if we just loved ourselves. But for people who struggle with that, I think these reminders can actually make them feel like they're failing, Mm -hmm. which in turn makes their self-love journey even harder. So uh, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I think every single human has to go on this journey, right, of figuring out self-love and self-acceptance. And um, and I'm not going to get, like, too Brene Brown on you, right? But, like, wouldn't Brene Brown say that um, that really self-love is all about um, vulnerability, mm. right? And that vulnerability then breeds bravery and bravery breeds compassion, you know? So, um, it's interesting because as I was sort of like thinking about this podcast and thinking about what I've been reading lately, like everyone that I've been reading is talking about self-love. If I'm reading anti-racism books, um, or, or pro-feminism books, or, um, you know, I'm even reading, I read sort of like a radicalizing your yoga practice book. Everyone is talking about love and self-love and how that, and, and like, um, Adrian, Adrian Marie Brown, you know, like everyone sort of talks about sort of like at the base of all of this is this self-love. And I, I think maybe at least the way that I've given myself a break on it is, is taking perfectionism out of the picture. You know, there mm. are going to be some times where I don't feel myself, right. Or yeah. I don't, where I don't feel like myself, where I don't feel in my body, where I don't feel like things are going my way and taking the perfectionism out, <laughs> you know, and, and sitting with the humanism of like, we're not always going to love ourselves. We're not always going to feel ourselves. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does because I think if you are just hammering away at the message and never acknowledging the part that you're saying, like, you can love yourself and also have days when maybe you're not a very nice person Mm -hmm. (laughs) or you um, sit around watching Netflix instead of working in your garden or you're going to forget your mom's birthday. And like those things don't have to automatically mean like, and I think like what I have found and something that has helped me is I, if I, for example, like I'm trying to implement a new practice and I skip a day or I fall off the wagon or something like that, then I'm like, oh, well, then the whole project is scrapped and I failed and I just like never go back to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that makes me feel bad about myself because I didn't follow through. And so learning to sort of let go of the idea that those missteps mean that you've like ruined everything. Um, that I think is helpful. So I, I just think tempering the message with, with some reality <laughs> um, seems like the way to go. Yeah. You know, and you're also reminding me that I do a lot of work in my practice with my clients of redefining, of redefining, you know, redefining health, redefining self-love, redefining self-care, and, and also helping people identify, like, what are your values? I mean, yes, I'm a dietitian nutritionist, so I deal in, like, food and body image and all of that. But, like, a lot of people have a lot of nutrition information. And so mm. a lot of my job sometimes is 
helping people assess what are the barriers and motivators to getting you where you want to go. And sometimes that's redefining health. Like, okay, you were taught that health looks like and sounds like this, but what does health mean to you? You were taught that self-love looks like and sounds like this, but what is, what if laying on the couch and watching Netflix is self-loving for you? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, a lot of the work that I do is redefining and, and like, whoa, 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 who helped you define self-love or health as this? And let's make sure that it resonates for you. Well, we're going to talk about the Hot Dog Hall of Fame now, where we induct a lesser-known feminist. And do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So, okay, so I was I was thinking about this for a while, and so many names came up, it's so hard to decide. Um, but in sort of thinking about the roots of my feminism and the roots of even thinking about, like, anti-racism work, and um, I thought of Smith College again. And I have to say that the, the woman that I would like to induct is Ruth Simmons. So mm. Ruth Simmons was the first African-American president of Smith College. Um, she was the president while my sister was there in the late 90s. And then she was the president during my first year or two at Smith before she then moved on to Brown University, where she became the first African-American president of an Ivy League school, which is awesome. Wow. Uh, yeah, she's basically a badass. Um, so what I know and remember about Ruth was that she grew up in a really poor family in Texas. She's in her seventies now. Um, she was one of 12 children. Her parents were sharecroppers and she, um, fell in love with reading. I remember her talking about like falling in love with reading. And I think I want to say that even her like undergrad or PhD was in like romance languages. She just fell in love with language. And she really thrived in school and she went to an HBCU and she eventually made her way up the academic ladder, um, ultimately to become the president at Smith. Um, and I, I just have really beautiful, vivid memories of Ruth being an incredibly inspiring leader. And at the beginning of every year at Smith College, um, convocation is held like in the main hall on campus and everyone goes, like every single student at Smith College goes. And I... I was at UNC Chapel Hill for a while um, as the campus health dietitian. That's how I like cut my teeth in nutrition was at campus health. And no one went to convocation. Like mm. convocation at other schools, I feel like it's like boring. It's like welcome back and like let's, you know, talk about the year ahead. And it's right. like at Smith, I'm pretty sure I was literally wearing a bra as a shirt. And we like <laughs> we marched from our houses like in mass chanting and like yelling and and getting amped up for the year, you know, and then Ruth was there and she was just this beautiful and eloquent spokesperson for like leadership. And she absolutely 100% instilled the idea in every single one of us that we could do anything we wanted, that we were the future. We were the women and the humans that were going to be leading and making the documentaries and leading the universities and doing the social justice work. Um, And she was this incredibly empowering president. And all I know every, we all loved her. Um, she sounds like a total rock star. She is a rock star. Definitely. Look up, look up Ruth Simmons. Um, and the best part about her is that I think she, um, she retired. So she went to Brown. She was the first, um, African-American president of an, of an Ivy league institution. And she was a woman and retired from Brown. And then this HBCU in Texas recently pulled her out of retirement. And so now she's the president of an HBCU in Texas. So she's, wow. she's basically like the Michael Jordan of college presidents. So I love it. Yeah. 
Well, Ruth, welcome to the Hall of Fame. Um, <laughs> you sound like a very worthy inductee. I can't wait to look up more about her. She's awesome. Well, I went back and forth. I was originally thinking about doing Jamila Jamil for the Hall of Fame. I was going back and forth between her and the woman that I ultimately decided on, who is the singer Lizzo. Oh, yeah. um, and they are connected because Lizzo actually has been part of the I Weigh, uh campaign. So, um, but I had to go with her because her album, Cause I Love You, just came out a few days ago. Um, and it's her first full length album on a major label. And I'm totally obsessed with it. It is so fun, yes. it's super body positive really empowering, very danceable, genre bending. Her voice is amazing. The production is amazing. Um, there's a track with Missy Elliott on it. So, I mean, I'm just like in love with her and with this album. Nice. Um, so Lizzo is an African-American woman. Um, she was born Melissa Jefferson, and she's also from Texas, from Houston. Um, she's also lived and worked in Minneapolis, and she's... Um, I mean, beyond multi-talented, she's a musician, singer, rapper, and a, like a very talented flute player as well. And she plays the flute on her album. So she's, when I say genre bending, that's, that's real. Like it's, she resists all categories for sure. Um, she is also a vocal advocate for body positivity with some qualifications, which I'll talk about later. Um, and she is, um, a woman of size herself and appears naked on the cover of her new album, which mm -hmm. is pretty radical. Um, <laughs> and especially when you, when you think about um, seeing her naked body and the album cover and the album is called, cause I love you. I just think that that context and that juxtaposition with the title is so powerful. Um, and her current um, on her current tour, she features big lady backup dancers who are just killing it along with her. So she's, um, very, very authentic through and through. And I don't, so it's not quite right to say that she's having a moment right now. Cause she's been here. I mean, mm -hmm. she, it's like the big labels and the big publishers are finally like, Oh wow, you're awesome. And she's like, yeah, you're late to the party. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually her third solo album and she's been performing with rock and R and B groups and rap duos for years and years. And she even sang on a Prince track. Prince was a fan of hers, um, back when she was living in Minneapolis. Um, but she's also pretty honest about the fact that she, for a long time resisted being a solo performer because she didn't see herself that way. And, um, also to, she um, did an interview in Entertainment Weekly where she said, for a long time, I didn't want to be that big black girl with a soulful voice. That's how we're tokenized. The big black girls were always the belters. And I've always been afraid of being put in that box. But you know what? I'm a big fat black girl who can sing and I can rap and I can dance. So I started to embrace how good uh, I can finally sing. And now I'm celebrating that. Um, so I really loved hearing or you know reading about her reflection on that um she's not only a brilliant musician but she's also a model um as an artist someone her material really reflects her message and her values and her identity so she's not someone who sort of separates those things um and she's a model for someone who's overcome crippling depression after the death of her father. Mm -hmm. She um, didn't speak for something like three months. Um, and she's also was homeless for a while and um, has talked about being uh, an exercise addict, which resulted in unhealthy weight loss and really fueled some self-hatred that she's had to work to fight back from. Mm -hmm. um, so she's 
been through a lot. And I chose her because um, she's very reflective about body positivity and self-love and um, recognizes that they really like, like we've been talking about, they have to be more than hashtags. They have to be more than internet fads. And she recognizes that those things can be helpful, but that they're ultimately not going to do the work for you. Um, And so I want to just end my, my thoughts about her um, with a quote from her, uh, from Allura magazine that I think kind of sums it up. She says, the body positive movement is the body positive movement and we high five. We're parallel, but my movement is my movement. And when all the dust is settled and the groundbreakingness, I'm still going to be doing this. I'm not going to suddenly change. I'm still going to be telling my life story through music. And if that's body positive to you, amen. If that's feminist to you, amen. If that's pro-black to you, amen. Because ma'am, I'm all those things. (laughs) And... I just really um I just really appreciate how real she is about the fact that, you know, she doesn't want to be someone who's sort of trotted out as an example of a successful, talented, fat, black, body positive woman. Cause the, all those things are gonna be true about her, whether anyone is paying attention to it or, you know, putting her down or or lifting her up for it. And she needs to feel um good about that separate from society's reaction to it. And I just think that that's also um, a really important thing to to lift up and celebrate and feel good about. So Lizzo, welcome to the Hall of Fame. Yay. Yay. <laughs> well, Antonia, thank you so much for joining me today. I have really enjoyed this conversation and I've learned a lot. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Me too. And listeners, don't forget to um, follow Antonia on Instagram at The Feminist Nutritionist. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and sign up for The Feminist Hot Dog Newsletter so you can stay up on all the latest hot dog news. Our music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. And our audio editing is by Square Lightning Design. Thank you for listening. Love yourself. Love your buns. Goodbye. This has been a production of NOCO FM.